Caro, and welcome to episode 70 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is Peter Case, a singer-songwriter who has covered a tremendous amount of ground, both physically and stylistically, over a long, impressive career. He played pop punk with the Nerves, power pop with the Plimsolls, Americana as a solo artist before Americana was considered much of a thing, and folk, blues, and rock in many forms since then. As he recounts here, Case grew up in the Buffalo area and headed west while still a teenager. Able to play multiple instruments, he became a street musician in San Francisco and was featured in a documentary film, Night Shift. Eventually, he became the bassist of The Nerves, a trio he formed with guitarist-songwriter Jack Lee and drummer Paul Collins. Case had a perfect two-minute pop song called When You Find Out. One of those two, hanging on the telephone. Case has an epic story about how Blondie wound up covering that Nerve song and made it the lead track on their breakthrough album, Parallel Lines. The Nerves moved to Los Angeles and toured with the Ramones before breaking up. In 1978, Case launched the Plin Souls as a bigger, better articulation of his power pop vision. The band's self-titled 1981 album attracted praise, but not major sales. The Plimsolls drew more attention for Case's 1982 song, the power pop classic, A Million Miles Away, released on the band's own label. Geffen signed the Plimsolls, released their second album, Everywhere at Once, and re-released A Million Miles Away as a single. It hit number 82 on the Billboard Hot 100. The Plimsolls performed that and two other songs in Martha Coolidge's 1983 movie, Valley Girl, starring Nicolas Cage. But Case's musical interests outgrew the strictures of his band and he embarked on a solo career while still signed to Geffen. His first album, 1986's Peter Case, was produced by T-Bone Burnett and boasted an all-star lineup, including Roger McGuinn, Jim Keltner, and Van Dyke Parks, who arranged the song Small Town Spree. Look in your eyes, I never thought I'd see The captain said you'd been arrested in connection with that small town spree The album was ahead of its time with its rootsy Americana approach and was widely acclaimed. It topped New York Times critic Robert Palmer's year-end best-of list. I heard the song Steel Strings a lot on the radio, and later when Marshall Crenshaw covered it, but the album wasn't considered a hit and neither were the well-received follow-ups Man with the blue postmodern fragmented neo-traditionalist guitar and six-pack of love. The latter, produced by Mitchell Froom, contained a catchy attempt at a hit single, Dream About You. Since then, Case has continued to follow his muse to various places. He hit peaks with a stripped-down, low-budget, full-service No Waiting from 1998, the Grammy-nominated traditional folk of 2007's Let Us Now Praise Sleepy John, and 2021's The Midnight Broadcast. That last one was kind of a concept album, a collection of covers and standards recorded in the old Wailing Church in Martha's Vineyard. And it included one original, Just Hanging On, that he wrote when he was 15. They don't care what you say if you talk fast. They listen anyway 
than just hanging on. Case's 16th solo album, Dr. Moan, comes out March 31st on Sunset Boulevard Records. It finds him banging out original rhythmic blues songs on the piano, no drums necessary. And you know we don't get Talking from his home in San Francisco, Case goes deep into how he writes and creates his music. He recalls his days of scraping by, his adventures on the LA scene with the Go-Go's and other bands, and his dreams of recording hit radio songs. Were his major label days exciting, disheartening, or both? Does his songwriting dictate how each project will sound, or does he decide on a direction first and then write songs to fit it? How did he come to play and sing alongside Richard Thompson on the song Every 24 Hours from his album Let Us Now Pray Sleepy John? Does he write differently on piano than guitar? How did he come to have such a rhythmic piano-based approach on Dr. Moan? What's the one genre of album he still wants to tackle? If you're a songwriter or someone who appreciates songwriting, you will love this carol pop conversation with Peter Case. And that's the oldest story in the world. The nerves formed in San Francisco, and then you guys all moved to L.A., right? That's right, man. So we uh, we uh, drove down there on the very beginning in 1977, and uh, the first day of the year, and uh, down there for a long time. But I moved up back up here about 10 years ago. Why'd you move back? You know, I had kids down in L.A., and they grew up down there, and um, my wife and I, she grew up here, too. You know, and we both missed it here. The kids were gone. Uh, they'd gone out into the world, and so uh, we had an opportunity. We had a house down in L.A., but we, we shut it down and got an apartment up here and came up. Yeah, well, San Francisco is beautiful, obviously. So, um, And you grew up in sort of the Buffalo area, and then you were in San Francisco, and then you were in L.A., and your music sounds like it's from like every corner of the country, like your new album, uh, Dr. Moan sounds like, you know, you've been, you know, sort of living down in new Orleans and, and pounding out this stuff. Was it always kind of conscious that you were just kind of absorbing all these different influences from all over the country, no matter where you were? I grew up on radio as a kid. And then I, uh, started hanging out at the record store, I guess about 1968 or 67 or something like that. And, uh, uh, there was a woman there that ran the record store. She seemed like an old woman, you know. She was probably about thirty-two or something, you know. And she uh, was super cool. Uh, we called her Mrs. Cox, and she uh, turned me on to so much music at that record shop. And so I got into uh, music from all over the country. Uh, Muddy Waters. I, I special ordered a Muddy Waters album, and as a young teenager, best of Muddy Waters on chess. Oh wow which was pretty rare back then. That was before there was any, you know. It was before he was doing his kind of like trying to do the crossover, like electric mud rock kind of stuff. I don't know if it was before electric mud, but I didn't want to hear, I didn't like electric mud. I wanted to hear the original chess records. Right. The original, the original great sessions with Little Walter and everything. And Otis Spann and all that. So I got into those kind of records and I listened, you know, my parents, they had records too, you know, so they were turning me on to music from all over the country too. For example, they listened to a lot of Dixieland and my dad loved Dixieland jazz and my mom, of course, loved Frank. And then there's Elvis. He was from Memphis. And so uh, El Elvis was a king at my house because I was the youngest of my sisters were uh, like, like 10 years older than me. 
Elvis fanatics, you know, they were in love with Elvis. And so the house was filled with early Elvis rock and roll and Everly Brothers rock and roll from Kentucky. And so all this rock and roll, it was like all from all, it was all over the country. And then I began listening to blues records with that record I was telling you about. And I went and saw the Butterfield band speaking of Chicago when my parents right. took me to see Paul Butterfield in 1967 at a bar in Buffalo called the Royal Arms. And I saw the Butterfield band when I was a little kid. <laughs> and after wow. seeing Paul Butterfield, man, it was like, uh, I, I just knew what I wanted to do. It was like, uh, was guitar your first instrument? No, I played ukulele and then I played uh, piano and then I played saxophone and then I played guitar. Wow. And then so I played how was, bass. How did, how did learning that stuff in that order sort of affect how you, you know, ended up becoming professional musician and writing songs? I think one thing about guitar, about um, the way I play guitar is I do play it kind of like a piano because, you know, I had this guy who taught me some stuff when I was a kid. He was sort of a jazz player and I was about 14. I thought I was going to play jazz and he was teaching me what makes up chords and that you can just on the guitar and you can just make up your own chords by putting together. So I've always like, you know, it's trickier on the guitar than it is on the piano because of the way it's laid out. Right. Piano, you could just move your fingers and it's like, oh, look, I invented a chord. Yeah, that, exactly. And so uh, uh, that's one of the joys of piano. But I've always played guitar kind of like that, like a piano, too, a little bit. You know, I've never been like one of those kind of lead, you know, lead screamer kind of players. I'm more of a rhythm player on guitar and piano. I, I'm not really a guitar or piano soloist, really. And um, saxophone, I don't know. I don't know how that affected me, really. Uh harmonica was is always something i've really loved to play i started playing when i was a little kid and i learned how to cross the harp when i was a little little teenager and uh you know when friends and influenced people with blowing blues looks on the harmonica you know yeah kind of impressive revolt to older people that you could come out whip out a harp and like Wah. you know <laughs> and right so, you stick uh, it in your pocket you don't have to like schlep a um you know guitar case to your friend's home or something like that i know i wish i would have just stuck with the harp it's like so so much easier but uh it's a tough instrument to master, but I was a big Butterfield fan. And then I saw that band, um, you know, they had a couple of guys from the uh, Chicago Art Ensemble playing in the Butterfield band at that point. And they were a great, great band. Like it's it, the record called Pig Boy Crampshaw came out later. I don't know if you know that one came out later, but anyhow, but that was what they were playing. That was the repertoire on that gig. And it was mind boggling. You know, I left home. I left Buffalo. I traveled across the country uh, in 1973. And the West was like a super attractive thing to do to to me, you know, the West, you know, I could have gone to New York and gotten away from Buffalo, but I wanted to get farther away from Buffalo than right. New York. So I went west and uh and you saw the whole country in between it sounds like i did and i used to travel around a lot back before that and then but there was something about the west where it was like everything that was loose in the country was like kind of rolling out west at that point uh in 73 74 so i was out there at that point and it was a, you, you had a i was it was able able in san francisco at that time there was like contact with musicians from all over the country they were coming through and so you would meet a lot of people i was a street musician so um just came in contact with just all kinds of people and all sorts of music and all sorts of things, you know? So yeah, there's a movie you're in where as a street musician as like a really young guy called night shift, which is not on YouTube. Cause I looked, I, I just kept finding the Commodore song and then Springsteen's version of the Commodore song. But yeah, I was like thinking, Oh, I got to check this, this film out of you 
as a street musician what, in your teens, right? Yeah, I was 19 when they made that movie. And they kind of followed us around out there on a pretty off night on the street. You know, I had a little street band at the time. And um, it was a wintry night and it was very dead on the street the night that they got us on the street. But they did get us. There's a movie that they've made. Um, There's a documentary called A Million Miles Away about my right. Newer travels as a musician. And those clips are at the very beginning of it some of those clips from that movie it's a real nice looking movie black and white film and you know it's 1973 so it's really interesting to just to see the streets and what right. people are wearing and you know the whole vibe you know so so yeah i was lucky to be in that i, I sing i sing the harder they come in it and i played I'm black just... row blues at one point in the in the actual film uh that the, the guy made but the, they, i think they might use the soundtrack in a little bit in the movie or something i don't know as a street musician, you were playing guitar? Yeah, I play guitar and harmonica on the street. Sometimes there'd be a piano out there uh, at different places, and I would play that because I could. But when I left home, I, I had to sort of shelve the piano playing a bit and uh, concentrate on guitar. You know, you can't. I couldn't really take it. I had, I had an upright piano for about a week after I left home. But, you know, what are you supposed to do with a piano when you're on the road? <laughs> so right. I, could, I was just a kid. I, so I, I just took the guitar and the harmonica and played. So on what instruments did you write your first song? I mean, I wrote a lot of songs on guitar and piano back. I, I wrote my first song when I was 11. It was called Stay Away From Me. I'm No Good For You, it was called. Wow. Yeah. And then I wrote a bunch of songs um, with another guy for a while. We, we were kind of a songwriting team, you know. And then I wrote my first, kind of the first solo song that I wrote. I wrote it on piano. And it's actually the first song on the album before this one called The Midnight Broadcast. If you have if you have a way right. to listen, listen to the song called Just Hanging On. And that's exactly the way I wrote it and the way I laid it down when nothing's different about it than from when I did it when I was 15. Really? I was I was actually just listening to that song and I was thinking, oh, you know, this is like a although it's pre pandemic, but it sort of felt like the way a lot of people feel now. So that was a prescient song to write when you were a kid. Yeah, well, it was pretty terrible back in 69, too, or was 68 or wherever it was. 69 you know it was like you know the world felt it was coming apart at the hinges even back then you know i had a key to a church um the people at this unitarian church gave me the key to the church to play the piano in there you know and i used to go into the church and, and i wrote that song in this church so when i years later i'm making this record the midnight broadcast we're recording in a in the place called the old whaling church in martha's vineyard it's an old whaling church and uh, and it had an incredible echo in there and they had a, a piano set up in there and I started playing it and it just immediately reminded me of playing in that church. And so I played that song. It was the first thing we cut. I just played that song the way I wrote it. It's the first song I ever wrote that anybody wanted to hear twice. Right. Had you been playing it all this time or did it just come back to you? It kind of came back to me. I hadn't played it for years. I played, wow. I, I put it on another record with a guitar at one point, but it wasn't right at all. I, it was a mistake, but, um, because it was a piano song. Yeah, so you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. At some point in there, I started playing it again. I, I knew it before I got to the church. I, I know how, I mean, I know how it goes, you know. Right. So you're it was saying a song that like older people would hear, like old people, like 23-year-old, 25-year-old music fans. When I was 15, they would seem like they were like, you know, Mount Rushmore or something. So I would play it for them and like people started wanting to hear. It was the first song I had at any time that people wanted to hear it again, you know. Case, play the song again. And so I would do it. You know? How did you go from that to the sort of punk pop thing with the nerves? I wanted to, you know, I was out on the street and, 
it was a lonely life out there in ways, in a lot of ways, and it was a tough struggle. And at the time, 1974, when I was still playing on the street, uh, I met this guy, Jack Lee, who was like living with his girlfriend in a hotel room. That looked, that seemed incredibly upscale to me compared to uh, the life I was living as a street musician. And so uh, he needed a bass player. He was putting together a band, you know, and he had written the song uh, Hanging on the Telephone. Right. And I had a song called When You Find Out. So we went down and, and played our songs for each other. And, and he asked me to, if, if I would take up the bass and join his band. And I, I yeah, what the hell, you know, let's do it. And so they're both I, these like great two minute pop songs, like they're, they're each like two minutes long and catchy as hell. Yeah, that's kind of what it was. And, and you know, I wrote that song uh, when you find out in 74, I was 20, I think. And uh, I remember writing it. it was like the, it just it was really the, the first song I wrote in California that really made any sense. And so, so when I, I had a chance to get in a band with, the, with Jack and the, he hadn't really put the band together yet. But he had a couple. He had. Uh, he was working with a guy from his hometown, from Alaska. That they were working together, and so we all started working. And uh, I learned how to play bass. You know, I. I uh, yeah, I was wondering if you'd played it before. A little bit. I played in a jug band kind of thing back in Buffalo at one point, but I wasn't any good on bass, and so I had to like. Uh, I put on Jerry Lee Lewis's greatest hits and play along with that. And I put on the Rolling Stones now, if you know that album. It has these long grooves that, like Bill Wyman, like boom, 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 boom. That's it, you know. And so I, I would just sit there and play with that um, over and over and over again until I learned how to play bass. The kind of music you were making in that, were you like, oh, this is this is like my thing, or was it just something you were enjoying doing at the time, or? You know, I wasn't doing that kind of music exactly before I got in the nerves. And I had some big arguments with Jack Lee about what was good and what wasn't. And he kind of won them. I couldn't really, uh, you know, but I, I liked what he was doing. He was really talented. He had an incredible um, talent. You could see he was just, you know, and so he was exciting to be around because he was going to make something happen. I love the band and Bob Dylan and Exile on Main Street by the Stones. Those uh, Marvin Gaye, what's going on? I love Dr. John. I was into all that stuff. And then he wasn't in the, all he was into is like 60s Beatles and uh, stuff like that. And like that really wasn't where exactly where I was coming from. But I thought that his take on it was really original. He had a great take on it. And I was already kind of, you know, I obviously I, I, I grew up on those records too, and I loved them deeply. And so um, it was really, really exciting to play with a band the first time and to play bass and to be part of a rock and roll band like that. It was so exciting, you know, to be all of a sudden making your own, doing your own songs and playing these songs and they really would sound cool. And it's like, wow, this is, um, you know, this is really mind boggling. So I, I fell in love with it and I wanted to learn how to do it. I learned how to do it over the, um, the course of the nerves. And then I put the, I want, when the nerves broke up, I wanted to have a better version of the nerves that would, could really, the nerves had great songs. I think in my opinion, there was a lot of good writing going on, but the live performances weren't as strong as the writing. And I wanted to have a band that could write songs like that, but then just blow the roof off of places live. And that was the Plimsolls. And that's what we right. did. That's what we did. And, and so the Plimsolls were like a really hot rotted version of the nerves, like to the point where we could really go out and rock the house, you know? And we did that. We've got a huge following all through California and down in Texas and stuff, Atlanta and different places, but we never really broke nationally. But that, that's the point of that band was, um, 
I was starting to grow beyond like, I, you know, the nerves was like adding this, the nerves was like into that thing we were into. And I learned with that. And then it was all widening as it got into the plimsolls. Right. I was getting back into the stuff I originally loved, like soul music, which I always really loved, which the nerves were a little bit about that because we love Motown, but it wasn't really the top. The nerves were very influenced by Motown, but like people don't really because we weren't that good. But you know, then the plimsolls we brought in the soul music thing and like a blues element and like uh, things like that, you know. Um, and you and you'd moved down to L.A. in the meantime with the nerves, so you're you're now an L.A. band instead of a San Francisco band. Yeah, the nerves broke up. I painted houses and worked jobs for about a year while I was putting a new band together, and then. Uh, we started playing at a five sets a night club down in El Monte um, called The Place. And um, we played down in The Place for a few months, like playing five sets a night, like, you know, four four nights a week or something like that. And um, rehearsing the other days, but putting together, we started we started our, 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 our original music down there. And then I got fired from The Place. The guy running it thought that I was on acid or something, if I remember it. <laughs> Pete's on acid. He's fired. And I wasn't on acid. I was just uh, excited. And uh, maybe I'd had a few drinks or something. I can't remember. But um, I mean, I certainly had. But he fired me. So the band quit. And so now we have to go get into Hollywood and get gigs. And we immediately got a following going on Hollywood. Like we started playing Madame Wong's and Hong Kong Cafe and Black Keys and all these different clubs there. At what point did you first hear Blondie's version of Hanging on the Telephone? And what did you think? Okay, so <laughs> so when I was in the nerves, we're driving down the road in Chicago, actually, in a rush hour, trying to get, I think we we're trying to get to Rockford or something. And uh, we had a gig out there. We were, on, we were playing gigs with the Ramones out in that area. And uh, it was 77. They had Rocket to Rush out. We were playing shows with them. And, we, and I already knew blondie from the radio but jack heard blondie and he goes they're they need to do i want them to do my song we got to get them to do the song right so, <laughs> so paul the drummer with the nerves sent it to blondie's manager might have been his name might have been peter leeds and uh he sent the record to him and then didn't hear anything back and then he started calling to see what was going on and all this stuff and then finally he gets peter leeds on the phone apparently and peter leeds says uh Look, man, quit calling here. Like, well, what'd you think of the record? You don't want to know what we thought of the record. Well, what'd you think of it? We, we hate the record. And uh, really, what the what what'd the band say about the record? They hate the record too. Everybody hates the record. Quit bothering us over here. <laughs> and uh, and all that, right? So meanwhile, we're down in L.A., right? I get back to L.A. And I'm friends with this guy, Jeffrey Lee. He hasn't started the gun club yet. His name's Jeffrey Lee Pierce, and he's the president of the Blondie fan club. And so me and Jeffrey meet at this party over at this guy Fast Freddy's house, and we're sitting in, in Freddy's room playing old records and, you know, drinking or something, playing guitars. And uh, I gave him a copy of the Nerves record. We, you know, we kind of hit it off, you know, and he, I gave him a copy of the Nerves record, and apparently he went home and taped it and gave it to Debbie and Chris. Um, when they were about to fly to Australia. Wow. So they they flew to Australia, and by the time they got to, and then they were on a, 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 a tour of the Pacific Rim or something, and they ended up over in uh, Japan and Tokyo, and they um, realized that people they were playing this tape around were going crazy over hanging on the telephone. And so they went into, right into the studio and cut it. Now the band, the nerves, meanwhile, had broken up. So I was like painting houses, all this stuff. And then I'm trying to remember where I was when I first heard it. 
It's like Blondie is cut hanging on the telephone. We'd been pushing that song for like, you know, I've told you, I first time I heard it was like 73 or 74, you know, so now it's 77. And like, then it's, it comes out on this record and it's like, uh, like a huge hit. It was the first hit for off that record. And it's like um, the kick lead track on their best album, their breakthrough album, parallel lines. It was mind boggling, you know? And so, uh, I can't remember where I was when I first heard it, but I probably fainted or something. But, uh, so the band had broken up. So Jack, so Jack, meanwhile, is like done, like uh, he signed some big publishing deal and all this stuff, and he's living like like I'm living like you know the way I always lived, you know, like some trying to keep it together, you know. And Jack's living in the penthouse in Hollywood, and he has a party and invites us to it. Maybe that was the first time I actually heard it, you know. <laughs> and like you know, he had like an XKE or a Corvette or something. All oh, that was crazy, man. All but, from hanging on the telephone. No, he got you know what happened was he. He got hanging on the telephone and then he immediately got another record through chrysalis publishing they got him they got a uh, got him uh, another nerve song come back and stay became a number one hit for uh or at least a top five hit for paul young all right and so each of those bands cut two tracks and so the, the both of those records sold multi-platinum and so jack made uh, <laughs> he made bank on the on, on the nerves material and uh it was mind-boggling to you know see that all happen, you know. And the arrangement's pretty similar to your arrangement too. I would say identical. Oh well, not not quite. Maybe slight. Yeah, pretty similar. Like very, very similar. It's just Debbie Harry singing it, but uh, yeah. Yeah, and there's like you know the drum fills are a little different and stuff, but but it uh, has the same dial tone at the beginning or the ringtone. Same dial tone. It was probably might have even been the same dial tone. I can't remember. But uh, have to do an A B. You know, I, I mean, Jack had sung that song to me right when we were starting the starting the nerves. You know, you know, I knew it was a pretty great song right when I first heard it. You know, I just love the fact that he had this idea of sending it to Blondie and got rebuffed, and then somehow it ended up with Blondie anyway. And then it came in the back door. Know. That's how things work. You know, like uh, that. In my opinion, like the least likely thing to happen is usually what happens, and uh, the least likely to succeed. You know, is is very often the thing that takes off. And you know, some guy with some crazy idea, like they're going to cut my song. I think he actually said they're going to cut my song in the car that day. Right. Like, like you didn't think, oh, let's just give it to the Ramones or something. And it was like, it was Blondie specifically. Well, we were on the road with Ra Ramones. The, yeah. They, would so they were hearing it every night, but, but, uh, you know, they could have done it if they would have wanted to, but they had their own things, but Blondie, uh, some, for some, you know, they jumped on it. I don't, you know, it's crazy. They, somebody had a, a real eye for, you know, something that would work for them. So with the Plimsolls, what I was wondering was when you wrote A Million Miles Away, did you think, oh, this is like the song? We wrote it and it was exciting to write it. And it was really fun. I wrote it with a couple of guys that I wrote a lot of songs with. But then, no, I had, we wrote like a couple, we finished a couple other songs the same day we wrote that and they were all on a cassette. And so um, I had them all on a cassette and I wasn't really listening to it. And then one of the guys in the band um, listened to it. Uh, and then said, you know, this song's pretty cool. Maybe we should work that up. And all the licks and everything were already in it, you know, the way I played guitar on it. Somewhere in there, I realized it was a really powerful song. And I went in and I wanted to get off of uh, the Planet Records deal because of it. I went into Planet, like everybody else was trying to get record deals. And I went into Planet and said, let us off the label. Because they had a two record deal with them. And when they made the first record, and it really kind of um, died on the vine, you know. And uh, so I went into Richard Perry and I said, 
Richard, I know we owe you another record, but let us out of the deal, you know, you know, and he goes, okay, if that's really what you, you sure you, that's what you want to go. That's what I want. And I got out of that deal. And then we went and cut a million miles away independent. And I knew, I knew by that point, it was going to be a, our biggest record at that point. At what point did you guys hook up with the movie Valley Girl? Way later. You know, that almost, that was like a blip on the radar. You know, uh, we almost, uh, you know, it was just a d afternoon's work, really. Or maybe a couple days. I think it was one afternoon, really. Um, it was pretty much later, you know. Um, it wasn't, it, we didn't have high hopes for it or anything, because there's just so many movies in L.A. and all this stuff. But they did put us in the movie. I liked that Martha, whatever, Coolidge that ran the movie and everything. She was right. nice. And, and uh I think she has some sort of Buffalo background. So I kind of hit it off with her a little bit. And um, yeah, this film writer, Keith Phipps, who had, he'd written this book about called the age of cage. It was about Nicholas cage that I read several months ago. And I was reading this book. I'm like, I've never seen Valley girl. So my wife and I sat down, we watched Valley girl. I'm like, Hey, it's the Plimsolls. So I was he really loved the Plimsolls and him and that other guy, Cameron die his sidekick in the movie would come out to Plimsolls rehearsals and hang out, you know, and listen to us. And they were super into it. You know, I don't, I don't know if they were doing that to get prepared for the movie or what, but, um, I liked him a lot. He was a really good guy. And, uh, we just went and did our thing. You know, we, those move, songs you hear in the movie, the rough mixes for the album that was about to come out. The album hadn't even come out yet. The single was on the radio, of course. It was already a hit. We put that out on our own label, and it was a hit. And that's what got us the record deal. What was the L.A. scene like at that point? Like, was it, you know, were there a lot of bands, and were you guys cooperative with each other or competitive with each other? It was super fun, man. It was really exciting to be part of that scene. All the bands were, there was a lot of great bands. They were all pretty great. And like, they were, um, there was a real crowd for every, you know, a lot of bands like he had big followings and the bands were all different and they were very supportive of each other. So we were friends with X and the, the Go-Go's and, um, you know, the blasters, you know? And so you would go to a gig right. and you would hear like, you know, David will have written a new song, you know, for the blasters and you'd be at the gig like, Oh man, it's a great new song. He's got, you know, or you get the, the Go-Go's got, you know, they just put, we got the beat in the show, you know, or something. It was really exciting. And, um, I was really lucky to be part of it. Really. It was a super creative and really uh, wonderful scene while it lasted. Yeah, I read, I can't remember where I read it. There was somewhere that, that said that, uh, you know, bands like the Plimsolls suffered because the knack became so big that there was a backlash against power pop. Does that make sense? I don't know. You know, who knows? But like, we never had anything to do with the knack. People, I think maybe thought we did, but like, obviously like with the nerves, don't that sound was, like, like the knack. yeah, yeah, we, we were way years ahead of them, man. But, but, uh, you know, whatever, you know, I mean, you know, it's all a roll the dice, really, because you can have great songs and great material and all that stuff. And then you roll the dice and, you know, there's different there's so many different factors, you know, like when A Million Miles Away came out on Geffen, like I was reading this book, Hitman. He was like a, Geffen was the company. Um, the companies were at war with the uh, independent promotion people. And so that affected us and Elvis Costello, who was on another label that was like at war with them. And so there was a big battle with independent promotion people going on. So it's like, oh. you know, who knows, was that it? Or was it, you know, something about us or something about the, uh, astrology? I don't know, man. I, I really don't know. Um, it's hard to say, you know, I know the go-go's nobody thought they were going to be the most successful thing of the whole bunch. And they were, you know, like, so that's what I mean. What were your kind of dreams at that point? Like, what were you hoping was going to happen? I wanted to have a hit record and uh, keep making hit rock and roll hit records and uh, uh, 
buy a house in Malibu and uh, hang out on the beach, <laughs> you know, and make a million dollars and travel around with all my buddies in the band. And, you know, that's really what was going on at the start of the um, Souls. But as the band continued, I kind of grew up in it. I was starting to get really a lot more into the songs I was writing. I mean, I was always into it, but then I, I some doors started to open for me in my mind, I guess. I don't know. You got out of the hit record mentality? You know, I literally got out of it um, when I was making the first solo record. I was like, T-Bone, shouldn't we have a hit single on this record? Because just forget about that. <laughs> so, you know, I probably it was probably stupid to do that. But, you know, uh, like, you know, the people over at Warner Brothers, they love that record, you know, that first solo record. I mean, you know, T-Bone at one point, like we were listening to it in the playback in the studio with a bunch of people in there. And we have Mike Campbell on that record. And we have, you know, everybody. There were so many great musicians on that record. And it was a great record for the, you know, for the time, you know. It was like really timely. Uh, it was pushing a new frontier of like kind of like an Americana thing that hadn't even been named yet. Plus, it had this like real rhythmic kind of groove a lot of it. And... um T-Bone goes, if this record doesn't sell you a million a million copies, I'm going to quit the business. I remember he said, you know. Warner Brothers was super into that record. And uh, Jeff Aroff, I think, called me up, called me over to Warner Brothers. And he said, uh, we're going to take the song that you do by the Pogues. Um, I had the first version of a po first cover of Pogue song in the world, I think. It was uh, Tara Brown Eyes. And we did it with uh, Roger McGuinn and Jim Keltner and uh, Van Dyke Parks and me played on it with t-bone and we recorded this version of it that was kind of like the idea was sort of like like doing an electric you know with what the birds did to mr tambourine man we're going to do this the sam mcgowan song was you know sort of what we did but they loved it over warner brothers who was distributing geffen and they said um if david geffen we're going to make a video for this we think this could be like a big hit and we're going to make it we're going to get it to mtv and we think we can get it played but they um asked david geffen to come up with some money and he said no and so he said, I think somebody over there said, I'm not sure it was David, but I think somebody said, we've already spent more than enough money on Peter Kicks. Because they didn't understand why all of a sudden from going from rock and roll, now I'm doing writing these story songs and folk songs and playing, you know, I've changed my style a bit, you know. I mean, there's some pretty rocking tracks on that record too, but but they, uh, there was a lot of grub, you know. I was going off in a new direction that they weren't really quite ready for. So, you know, no hit singles. And so I, I quit trying to make hit singles. Uh, the, the next time I tried was on, uh, I really had to, they, the pressure was on them by the Six Pack of Love, and I tried to write a hit song for them. But that right then was when Nirvana came out and the whole definition of hit song went up the window. So uh, that was the last time. So I'm getting, I'm guessing dream about you was that song. That's right. Um, to go back to your, your debut album, I heard steel strings a lot. Like that was a song that was really like, and I don't know if it was cause it was the year I graduated college. And I, so I don't know if I was hearing it in Philly or if I was hearing it in Chicago on XRT, which is probably the case, but that was a song that was like, and that's a song I knew backwards and forwards from the radio. Yeah. I thought that was a good record. You know, that was with Mitchell Froom produced that and uh, with T-Bone and, yeah, that song got a lot of play, you know. That was the one that they were sort of pushing. How did the Plimsolls break up, by the way? How did you get how did you get from the Plimsolls to solo Peter Case? Well, the Plimsolls broke up in 83 the first time. We we were going to disband. I said I'm going to leave the band, but if you guys want to keep going, you can do it, but I'm going to I'll write you songs, but if you guys want to stay together and get a lead singer, um I'll continue to be involved, but I, I got this other thing. I was trying to get them into what I was doing, and it wasn't really working. Um, and so I was willing to let it go. And so 
I left the band. Because you wanted to be more, you wanted to be more expansive with the music, and they were sort of more of a power pop band. Yeah, they they couldn't really follow where I was going. Like I had that song uh, "Walk in the Woods," or even "Steel Strings" and stuff, and like uh, they just didn't want to play that. You know, I then we went on one more tour in '84, and I was really trying to pull it together to do it, but finally, uh, it just wasn't going forward, and and. Uh, and so then there, for a while there, you know, I, I said, well, I could go solo or you can go, you know, there was a record deal, but then the, the record company was interested in what I was doing and they picked me up. Which was a good thing. Yeah, because I was working with, I started working with T-Bone Burnett and I got him to help me and we, we went ahead and did that. And so I was, I was really, that was, I felt very naked and not having a band anymore. But um, on the other hand, it was very exciting, you know, and, and you know, I don't know, I, I'd spent 10 years or 11 years, 10 years at that point in bands. And, and uh, I felt like I'd done it. If it would have been more successful, I would have kept going. But like, I felt like we were kind of, I felt like this thing I was doing was really where it was at. Like it was really the pulse of what I was inspired to do is where I was taking the songs. And it, it, the Plimsolls thing, it felt like uh, yesterday to me at that point. But yeah. we did it and we, everything like that. And it's cool, but like, I wanted to move on. Yeah. It seems like there are some people who are just like, I need to be in a band. And then some people who it's like, no, I want to have the flexibility to just do all this different stuff. And, uh, you know, or you're not like Neil Young and you just have like four different bands and then you just mm -hmm. sort of like, depending on who you're, what you're playing, you pull up that yeah. band. Yeah. Mark, these days, like you could, it would have been easy to like keep them both going. Like everybody, like everybody's got their side projects and all that. But when I did that, you know, that really wasn't the thing. I, I had to, I felt like I had to make a complete commitment to going solo if I was going to make that count. Those first three records were on Geffen. Was that a did all? Was that ultimately a, a good experience or a damaging experience, or both? Not both. You know, like everything else in life. You know, uh, it, you know, it, it was great to get to make the records and you know and get to go out on the road. Like they didn't really. Uh, there wasn't a lot of um, support for the records really from there, but but it was great to get to go make them. Um, the third one was kind of a, the six pack of love one was finally the, the part the party was over. And like, there was a lot of pressure on me and it was a difficult period. My whole life was changing at that point. But, but uh, those first two records I made for Geffen, they were really, you know, they were great. They were fun to make. And I was happy to get out of there too, you know? I mean, I tried to get out of that deal too. Like I went into David Geffen and I said, save your money and my time and let me out of this deal. At what point did you do that? After Blue Guitar. Because you felt like they didn't support that second album there. Yeah, way. I felt like they didn't, and and uh, I was aggrieved. <laughs> and so I went in and I said, he goes, oh, Peter, you know, uh, it's all in the movie, that, that movie that these guys have. There's a story about it in there. But, you know, I went into David and I said, you know, let me out of here, you know. But he wouldn't let me out because Hyatt had, um, John Hyatt had gotten out of his deal there and went and had a big hit over it, like A&M. Right. And they'd taken out a full page ad. David Geffen told me this. They did taken out they took out a full page ad and billboard and wiped my nose in it, you know? And so he was he goes, That's not gonna happen again. You're if you're gonna have a hit, you can have it here, but if you're not, you're still gonna be here until your deal runs out. And so they wouldn't let me go. I had places I wanted to go with I could have gone right right straight out of there, but um I couldn't get out. Did that affect the that album, that six pack of love, the third album, just in terms of how you approached it and you know the mindset you were in and everything? They were being really, really difficult with me, and so they uh, got a guy assigned to my A and R. It's the same guy. You ever see that movie Yankee Hotel Foxtrot? Yeah. 
you know well they're they go, they're talking about they're trying to get this guy on the phone and his name's Mio and they can't get him on the phone and he's always jerking him around and sending him a record back and all that I go to see that movie and I go oh my god Mio that's the same guy that did it to me over at Geffen and oh, and, uh, and uh yeah, you know. I'm I'm the I am trying to break your heart that that movie that has that's about the making of Yankee Hotel Will Wilco's yeah. Yankee Hotel. Yeah, Fox, that's so. incredible. And so like it was this I'm sitting in the movie like oh my god I, it's the same guy and uh, they made it really difficult. Like they go you know go write you know write songs and you know, turn them into this Mio and then he'll decide when you're ready. So I write a bunch of songs and then Mio goes these are great go write go write a couple more. So I write a couple more and then and then uh, now they got him and they go you're going in the wrong direction. Uh, you know, <laughs> like go write, you know, go write 10 or 15 more songs. And it's like, dude, you don't understand. Like, you know, that's going to take me six months to get, get these up to, you know, 10 or 15 more songs. I don't just like throw this stuff out. I'm going to work it up, you know? And, uh, it was just really difficult, you know? And so, uh, it reflected on that record because they didn't want me to do anything I wanted to do. And they didn't like my demos I was making and all this stuff. But then Mitchell Froome kept calling me and I didn't really want to work with Mitchell Froome either. You know, I just didn't, you know, I'd already worked with him and uh, you know, he's a nice guy and everything, but I didn't want to work with him. I, I had other ideas, but uh, he's calling me and calling me and the le record company calls up one day and they go, Peter, we really want you to talk to this fellow Mitchell Froome. We think you'd really like him. I go, I introduced <laughs> you to Mitchell Froome three years ago. You'd never heard of him and you didn't want to work with him and you worked with him because I brought him over to you. He's on the first oh. record. Yeah. And so like they didn't realize that that's how out of it it all was. But I didn't want to work with Mitchell again. But then as soon as I took a meeting with Mitchell, the record company's like, oh, this is so exciting. Your work. And it had been such a pain in the ass to get things rolling on uh, that record. Well, I'd worked with Mitchell before. Let's just do a record with Mitchell. And I mean, I just wanted to get out of the deal and, and I just wanted to get through it. And um, I did. <laughs> it, you know, I mean, I had high hopes for that record, but uh, it, I didn't hate the, hate the way it came out. After that, like, was there sort of a decompression period? I mean, you, you took a little bit, and then your next album, I think, was was that Sings Like Hell? Yeah, I think I cut that the day I got out of the Geffen deal. I went over to Marvin Etzioni's house, and we, we cut a whole album in like a day over there, <laughs> you know, or a couple of days or something, uh, and put that out on my own label. That was the first thing that happened. And then, um, you know, it was like a solo folk record, folk blues record kind of record. So uh, then I was playing the um, Newport Folk Festival on the road, or I think it was, the, I forget what it was called. And uh, somebody from Geffen was there, and they I gave them a copy of it, and then I actually got a call from Geffen. We'd like to put this out. I mean, from, not from Gavin, from Vanguard. And so then I went, I started making records for Vanguard at that point. Right. Are there certain albums that you look at as sort of like these inflection points? Like, like there was, you had some sort of a light bulb moment or something shifted. And like, this was sort of a key, you know, key move that you made, you know, that just sort of turned things a little bit. Yeah, I think so. Like, uh, one record that was like that for me. Sometimes the light bulb goes on for me before I can make it go on for a record. It's weird, you know. Like you get an idea about something you want to do, and like when I did the record uh, "Torn Again," I started really wanting to do what I was going to do next. The next record on full service and awaiting, and and I finally was able to deliver like that kind of. It's almost a lo-fi record, but it's um, got a lot of presence. 
And we recorded it like off, like not in a recording studio, but in a, like a, just a room with a guy beating on a um, suitcase for drums, you know. And we had a harmonium, which nobody was using at that point. A lot of people copped that harmonium on a folk record kind of pad that we were using. And right. it was a really fun record to make. And I think that's one of my best records, Full Service, No Waiting. It was a fun record to write and a fun record to make with Andrew Williams producing it. And it's a good, good personnel on that record. So do the songs that you're writing dictate the approach you're going to take or do you decide on the approach you're going to take and then write the songs to go along with that vibe i was writing all the songs and hearing the sound in my head while i wrote them hearing an idea of what the song the sound could be and i was like i was writing them before i even put them on the guitar and then i would figure them out on the guitar you know i had i had some as soon as we got in the studio i knew what i wanted to start going for and it was that kind of thing i wanted the guitar to be up close so you could hear like i i'd always you know i didn't like the way recording sessions always had the guitar kind of like tinny or sounding and kind of far away i wanted to get your ear right up in the sound hole so right. like really had a lot so you heard the bass and the high end and the whole thing and that's that's what i tried to deliver from then on for years in the guitar sound like the way i hear it was like you know bass and it, you know that you that it's like a sensual uh, experience of the guitar not just like a, a little guitar chording away over there which is nice too it's a very humble sound but that's what we're trying to do and then i was finger picking the guitar and like the idea for that sound i think came from mississippi john hurt's record called today that he cut with pat pat sky and uh, um for vanguard I had that record ever since I was a kid. And so the guitar on that record, he's thump, playing without a thumb pick on it, finger picking, but you can really hear the bass and the the whole thing coming right off the guitar. Mm. So that's what I, that's the way I saw that record, but more rock and roll than what John Hurt's doing. And so that's, that's what full service in the waiting is. You had let us now plays sleepy John, um, which you got a Grammy nomination for traditional folk album, you know, from it's recognition, that would seem like a, a, a more significant album as well. Does it feel, did it feel like that? Yeah, one? It totally was, you know, to, you know, that was the first record for Yep Rock and, uh, Yep Rock was cool. You know, I met with them and the guys, the guy there said, uh, Glenn Dicker said, I said, I've said, this is not going to be a band record. I'm making a solo record. He goes, I just want to hear that that's exact. That's really what you want to do. If that's really what you want to do, I'll put it out. I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. So I went down and made that record. That was a real exciting record to make. Very stripped down. I mean, completely stripped down, like the records I loved by, you know, folk musicians like uh, uh, Forever, you know, like those early Dylan records or like, uh, you know, Mississippi John Hurt or uh, Burt Yanch records and stuff like that. And so um, that's what the idea behind that was or you know that kind of thing and so yeah that was a that was a big a big that was a very exciting record to make real satisfying to make that one it was cool hearing you picking with uh richard thompson on that on that song that was fun hours. man uh that was a real joy you know we were kind of nervous like, I mean, like the, the producers like who could we get to like i want to get somebody to who would you like to play with on the record i go well, how about pharaoh sanders and so we asked pharaoh sanders but uh, he wanted like like a we couldn't afford him, you know. <laughs> he wanted like ten thousand dollars to play on a song or something. We're like, oh. And then I also said Richard Thompson. I love Richard. Maybe Richard um, would come down and play. And we called up Richard, and he agreed to do it. And he was very cool. And I just came in and did it. And it was very, very fun to. But I realized right after we got a commitment to, with him from him to do it that uh, I didn't have a song. And so I wrote the song that the night before the session. I think it was really. Yeah, I wrote that song um, in my kitchen 
Santa Monica uh, uh, behind, you know, a couple pots of coffee and uh, guitar. I just knocked out a song and then I'm sitting there. I was talking to Denise. I was like, I hope this is this song works, man, because because I don't know. And it's like I was kind of nervous. And so I got down to the session and uh, Richard dug it. You know, he liked the song and did a great job on it. And then I asked him, well, can you sing on it, too? Like, you know, and he did. You know, it was really super fun to work with Richard. And like he he's such a great musician, you know, so. He was a, he was my first guest. My first two guests have been on your records. They've, for my first two guests were Richard Thompson and Bruce Thomas. Bruce Thomas. Wow, what a great musician that guy is. So I love yeah. Bruce Thomas. I haven't talked to him for years. I really hit it off with him when we were making that record. We had a really good time talking. I, I love Bruce Thomas. He's a super great guy. Yeah. I think he's really, I had, in a lot of ways very responsible for the, the impact that Elvis Costello had. Because you could just do any ballad with Bruce Thomas. And like when he, he would put the bass on, it would have so much attitude that it would just transform the, the track. He, absolutely. He just, he just plays with such attitude. It was like uh, very artistic, you know, like it would just make the whole thing like sound more. It was very aggressive and uh, colorful. Great player. Yeah, I love him, man. One time I was making Six Pack of Love with Mitchell and we were over and Bruce had played bass on every song on that record. And so, he, you know, we were just like over there. I don't know if we were mixing or what we were doing, but Elvis Costello comes down to the studio to visit. And uh, we're sitting there listening to it. He's like, I can tell he's digging and he's listening to it and all that. And I go, I go, yeah, that's Bruce on bass. Fantastic. Working with Bruce, man. And, and, got, <laughs> and Elvis got mad. He's like, I'm, I've made 15 records with him. You know, <laughs> he, got kind of out of, he got bent out of shape, sort of. Um, you know, like, don't tell me about Bruce. I know all about Bruce, you know. Yeah, well, and, and Mitchell Froome was producing Richard Thompson like at the same time you were making that record, just about. Rumor and Sigh, he produced, which he did Rumor and Sigh, I think, in like 91 and Mirrorball. Oh, yeah, that would have been around when we made that record with Bruce, yeah. And then Mirrorball in like 93. So, you know, you and you and Richard Thompson could have like just shared Mitchell Froome stories. I mean, um, Richard's a great guy. I've played gigs with him for years and stuff. I've known him for a long time. I, I love him. Yeah. Well, I love hearing just again, hearing your the way that both of your picking styles sort of meshed with each other. Like you could tell who's who, but it also really was this interesting other thing, the two of you together. I think so. I, I thought, and I like that song a lot. It's every 24 hours. I still play that song a lot live, you know. How much uh, did it mean to you to get that Grammy recognition and to go to that? Well, I got, I've got, uh, I've been nominated for three Grammys and I have the medal, the nomination medals hanging up by the bed, you know, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't know, man, you know, uh, I would have liked to win a Grammy, but, uh, getting nominated is cool. You know, the first time I got nominated, I didn't even know you could get nominated. I didn't even know what it was. I got nominated for old blue car on the, on my first solo record. And so I didn't even know about it. And then the second time we went down was for the John Hurt thing. I got nominated as a producer for that. And so we went down to it and it was really exciting. It was fun to be there. And then uh, the last time I got nominated, uh, somebody went through and won like, you know, eight of the Grammys or something. You know, so, uh, you know it's exciting. It's kind of interesting in a way. Uh, uh, you feel like you're part of the business, man. You know, you're getting noticed by people. You know, I'm an outlaw, man. So I'm, you know, I'm my heroes when I was a kid, you know, uh, you know, a lot of them were like blues singers and poets, you know, like blues singers and beat poets. You know what I mean? Like people living on the edge of society. So, you know, to actually uh, get noticed by a thing like that, you know, is uh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, like the Grammys and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame never had anything to do with what I actually like listening to. Um, 
but then at the same time, I'd be, you know, sort of, I'm like, oh, good. Warren Zevon got nominated. Great. Like he's not, you know, here to enjoy it, but, but better, better him than, you know, some other people, even though I think the whole thing's kind of bullshit. So well, I think I, the rock and roll hall of fame is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, cause like it's, it's, it's the whole idea is antithetical to rock and roll, like the idea of a hall of fame. And, you know, it's like, well, why aren't Los Lobos in it? But no, then you start making those arguments, like it's a valid thing, which it's not. The music is what's the hall of fame is like for me. Paul Revere and the Raiders aren't in the rock and roll hall of fame. Is, is Sleepy John Estes in there? No. I mean, you know, uh, you know, Sleepy John Estes is in there and Yank Rachel. I don't even want to know about it, but you know, um, that said, though, the, the Grammys, you know, uh, they're pretty ridiculous, too. You know, I went That's to the funny. Grammys once in a, with the Go-Go's when they were nominated for uh, Best New Artist, you know, and we all walked out in masks. They wanted to walk out when they didn't get nominated. So, <laughs> but, you know, I was there in a tuxedo with me and Bill Bateman were going out with a couple of the Go-Go's at the time. And we couldn't get anything to drink. So we broke into Sheena Easton's dressing room and uh, stole six packs. Me and Bateman. Wow. And then, we, then we went and hid in the in the um, curtains and started drinking these six packs. And this guy goes walking by and he does a double take and comes back, gets right up there and he goes, "Hey man, you can I, can I have one of them beers?" And we go, "Jerry Lee, man, what are you doing here?" <laughs> Jerry Lee Lewis, man. Oh, I'm just playing with my fucking cousin, man. Oh, this is a good. And he like does like a beer commercial. Probably he's like, that's a good beer, man. You know? <laughs> but it was fun talking to him. But you know, really, I don't have much use for the Grammys. It's a good Grammy moment, though. It was good. I mean, I wouldn't mind getting a Grammy, but I mean, I don't watch it or you know. So the new yeah. album, Doctor Moan. Um, we want the Grammy know, for Doctor Moan. I'll go for that. Sure. It's well. It, it's got a lot of that. You know the very percussive sort of new Orleans feel to it. I assume that you wrote most of it on piano that wandering days sounds like it's the one guitar song and the rest of it is piano. Um, right. Did you think I'm going to do a piano album or did it just kind of start happening that way? I'll tell you what happened was the shutdown happened. I was scheduled to go on the road. I had a long tour set up um, behind this record, the midnight broadcast. I was going to Europe, going all across Europe, all across the United States. It was going to be one of the best years on the road I ever had with a new record. And the whole thing went down the tubes behind the, the pandemic. Like we all had everything we all all of us planned, you know. So there I was sitting in my apartment in San Francisco. I, the front room's got a piano in it, and I can't go anywhere. I got claustrophobia, and my I'm blue because my tour's screwed up, and I'm blue because the whole world's like going to hell in a handbasket. And so uh, I say I'm, I'm going to just, and so I don't go crazy. I'm just going to sit in this room every day, and I'm going to play piano. I'm just going to get my piano playing going. So I got over there on the piano and I started playing every day. And the first thing I did was learn some Jimmy Yancey stuff. And I learned how to play uh, uh, In Walk Bud and uh, a few things like that and some standards. And I'm playing, you know, I'm just scooping around on the piano, playing some rock and roll and boogie woogie and stuff like that. You know, I don't really think it's like a New Orleans feel that much. It's just like it's like a conglomeration of like rhythmic piano from boogie woogie and rock and roll. And I grew up in a house with a, my big sister was a great stride piano player when I was a little kid. She was my babysitter. She was a teenager when I was a baby. So they would put me in like a, a you know, baby carriage or whatever it was right by the piano. Like it was a thing where you could stand up and jump around and she'd practice piano and she was playing all sorts of left hand boogie woogie jazz stride piano kind of shit. And I, w I was, uh, so I got it in my body. So, uh, and I always loved it. So I love that sound and I love that feel. So I, 
that's I think where the where that comes from. And I started playing the piano every day, learning these old songs. And then this it's like a ghost town outside, like as you remember, right? I don't remember where you were, right? And it's just a ghost town in San Francisco, and it's. I'm playing. You can hear the piano echoed up, up and down the street. I'm pretty sure because guys were walking by and they go, "Hey, man, are you the guy that's playing piano up there in that room?" You know, you go, "Yeah." They go, ah, "I like what you're doing on that one." You know, and I was <laughs> started getting these saws coming, and I would just play them over and over and over again, like just different feels that I was getting on the piano. I would just come in and groove every day, and then the songs started coming in, so they just started tuning in, and I wrote them, and it went on. This is the first record ever that I was able to like work up to writing and then write and then learn how to play and then go right from that into recording without having to go out on the road uh, half a dozen times for six weeks each to tour. Huh? And so, so it's the, it, in a way there's a centeredness to the record. Uh, I think, you know, it's grounded in a way that the other ones, you know, the other records are grounded, but this one's got a special kind of element of like, I was there for the whole thing. I never had to start over and drop the needle in a new place. I was always, you know, I was able to continue it. You know, the pandemic was terrible, but that was a great benefit of uh, just being in one place for that long was to uh, really tune in the the feel of it. It sounds like the music was coming first on this and then the and then the song and the, the lyrics and everything would maybe come afterwards. And is that the way you, you normally write? You know, I get them every which way. So, no, that's not the way I normally write. Sometimes I write music first. Sometimes I write lyrics first. And sometimes I'll get them all at once. There's a couple songs on there that were almost like instrumentals before I wrote them. And you can hear those. You can hear it. That song called Eyes of Love was in my head. But, like, I just kept playing the mute, the piano part in different keys. I would try it in this key and that key. And I would play it, like, over and over again, you know. And a lot of them were like that, you know. Well, that Dr. Nowhere's Blues, which is the the one that's actually the first one that's out. I mean, that's a song that sounds like you could go on for 20 minutes and I'd keep bopping my head to it. It's just such a great groove. Yeah, there. yeah. It's just like, that does have kind of a New Orleans, New Orleans kind of vibe to it a little bit. But yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah, definitely. You know, you could just play that one from, you know, rock. I mean, I would just get these going and like, you know, like, you know, every every song, you know, once it's over, you just want to, it can always start up again. Songs are all circular. Every single song, you know, is just, can go on a loop, and these were all on loops. So I would I would sit up here and play these songs on and on and on, you know, and it was fun. It was really fun. So you got a tour coming up for it? Yeah, I'm going out in April, doing a Midwest. I'll be coming up to Chicago in April. Cool. And I think I'm playing Fitzgeralds. Yeah. Oh, nice. And I'm I'm going. You know, I'm going up and starting in Boston and working my way over towards you, and then in June. There's a West Coast tour in June, and then there's a Texas that that's going to go on for a while, and then there's a Texas tour, you know, Texas in the South that'll be happening uh, probably in the fall. And I'm not sure, you know, I, I want I would had had plans to go to England and stuff, but I don't know when we're going. So you got a band together for it? I've got musicians that I want to call on, but we're, I'm not sure exactly who's coming with me. It's you know, I'll, what's on this record is uh, get, you know, piano, bass, and organ. Right. There's no drums, right? There's no drums. The piano is kind of like a 88 piece uh, tuned drum set, you know? Right. And, uh, so the bass really occupies a lot of that too. I love working with Johnny flower. I hope he can go on some of the tour with me. Yeah. He's great. So um, this will be a tour where you're sitting behind the piano, banging these songs out pretty much, or, you know, will you also like get up and play some stuff from the previous record on guitar or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I'll be playing a lot of guitar on the tour too. And yeah, there's no way I could give up guitar playing. I'll, I'll be doing that.
Which is which is sort of your more to use a cliched phrase. Which is more your like happy place, being on stage or being in the studio? Oh, on stage, more way more than being in the studio. Uh, uh, being on stage is a happy pl- is a great place. You know, being in the studio is great, but some, there's a lot of uh, just a lot of issues all the time. You know, and uh, you have to stop and like you know start over and listen to things back and all this kind of stuff. When you're on stage, you're just like making you know just make, making this thing happen, and the people are right there, and it's so much fun. You know, um, stu- the, the studio is fun, but I, I by far prefer playing live. Pandemic, I assume, messed you up in that way because it's just like you just you're just prevented from doing what you love doing. Yeah, I love doing it. You know, I love playing in the studio too. It's just different. Making records is satisfying because you know that you know because they stick around. Like every night you're out on the road playing, like you just feel like it's going off into space, and you had a fun time with those people, and then you move on to another one the next night, and it's always different. You know, and like people remember it. I remember. I mean, I remember being a kid and going to hear the Butterfield Blues Band or something in '67. But you know, it lives that gig still playing in my head, but. I guess there's you're trying to make that happen for people where you where they have something that really you know works for them like that. But um, you, with records, you know, you, you you're really getting it down, and it's going to be around for a while. So that's pretty cool. Are you writing all the time, or do you write specifically when you're like, okay, I got a I got an album coming up? No, I write all the time, uh, unless I'm too busy doing other stuff like that. I got to do, but like I, I write all the time. There's like songs all over the place. Like I'm going through a thing right now where there's so many pieces of paper and so many notebooks and so many songs scribbled and stuffed in weird areas around here. And, you know, it's almost out of hand, you know, Uh, it is out of hand. Like there's things here. So now I'm I'm trying to work on a way where I can like focus it. You know, I got to, you know, make sure that I'm not throwing a lot of things away, you know, but that's, what I do, I, I write to know what I think, to tell you the truth. Like when I'm writing words and when I'm writing my lyrics and I, I'm writing a book too, that I've been working on it forever. And um, I had one published a while back and I, you know, I'm, there's something very satisfying about writing and it makes, it helps you know what you think if you're a writer. Absolutely. Like, I, I was just saying that to someone. I said that writing is just sort of, yeah, yeah, it helps you like, helps you figure out what you're thinking and helps you clarify your thoughts. Yeah, there's a Absolutely. way that I don't even know what I'm doing unless I write it. You know, it's it's definitely a sense for me. What do you write on? Do you have notebooks? Do you, have, do you write on your computer? Do you like write your book? Well, I don't on ever the write computer, on the computer. But... I, I write the books on the computer, but outside of that, I, I write, you know, I got like a notebooks here, you know, I got one of these and I got, I got in this file card kick and then I got like, you know, this art book. I got, I ended up writing in that, you know, and uh, yeah, there's just a million things here with like stuff written on it. Um, you end up with a million of these cards and then you got to type them up, but then you can't remember if you already typed them up or not. I'm not organized enough with the file cards. So uh, I need to yeah, that would be a nightmare for me. I would just like leave them on the counter or the dresser. I know, I got a million of them. You'd have to like you'd have to like have a bulletin board and then you just kind of put them up on the bulletin board like in the Law and Order episode or something. Yeah, I got a million of them, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Do you I tend promise. to have a lot of unfinished songs that are they're around, or when you, do you finish songs when you like write something on an index card or a notebook? I try to finish them, but they don't all finish, and so uh, finishing is like oh, you have to kind of clear a bar to finish a song. If they don't all get finished. So I don't ever throw anything away. I don't ever, like, I don't have keepers, you know. I hear, like, songwriters talk about keepers, but I don't have keepers. Like, I have songs that are finished, and I have other songs that go back in the pond. Because they're all based on some sort of spark. 
the things that we create, you know, they're, we don't just create them because they're wrong. We, cre we get an inspiration or intuition because it's got some juice to it, you know. And so uh, a misstep may lead you to the place where you can't really finish something at that moment. And maybe you can come back and re-step it at some other time. That's very hard to do, though. As you go along, you start to realize that the best things are the ones that you do kind of finish on in one period. And you don't let the thing escape. And like a lot of times, it's the least amount of editing and the least amount of fiddling around with it that you do it enables it to still have a lot of the juice and the unconscious, you know, uh, ether on it that makes it great. You know, and if you overthink it, you know, you dry it out, you know, you pin it down and you... You know, you can ruin things that way. Is there a type of song or album that in your mind you think I'd still like to do this that I haven't done before? I would like to make at some point make a rock album. Because I don't think I've ever made a rock album. Like a big rock album. But I don't know if I'm ever going to do that, you know. But I feel like I, if I'm going to do it, I better do it pretty soon. I'd like to make a rock and roll album, you know, just like a real, like, you know, because I can sing. I can still sing. But, like, you know, I'm, I'm getting, it's, the clock's ticking, you know. I don't know how long I'm going to be able to sing the way I sing. And so I'd like to do that. You still sound like you. I still somehow sound like me. It's weird. And so I guess it's from con continually singing. So that's one thing I would like to do, though, is like make a like a total rock and roll record. I've even talked to some people recently about it. But I also uh, I have another vision of a record that I, I don't even want to talk about. But how many different records uh, do I envision right now? Uh, those there's two. And then there's another there's other ones. There's another one. And then there's what you end up actually writing, which will dictate the next thing anyway. Yeah, usually it's something, you know, you, something happens and you come in on some other sideways wavelength. A lot of times what you think you're going to do and what you end up doing is, it, 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 you know, you write the songs that, are, that come to you to write and you and you, um, you have to pay attention to those and get those down because it really is down to that. You can't force things to happen the way they're not supposed to happen, really. And so, I mean, any, anybody, you know, at any time you can sit there and like just hammer out a bunch of things that rhyme and then put a chord change to it and a melody and go do it, you know. I could, I could write a song right now, but, but to find the song that you really, that really says something to you and to me and that, you know, is it, you know, says, still says something to me, even if I read, you know, that's what we're looking for is something magical that kind of has some penetration, man, you know, right. you know, and so, you know, you're looking for that thing that's got some resonance that, you know, for me, you know, I want, I want to hear something that gets me off just like, and you, you know, and, and, um, it's not just like, you know, connect the dots or something like that. So sometimes something like that might be good. You, you just don't know. But it's a, still a mystery and, and it's still exciting, really. And I, I try to keep my standards. So, you know, for something like if I if I if I would hear it, would it what would it do for me? You know, and, and I try to look at it like that, too. Have you written any of those big rock and roll songs already? No. <laughs> I don't know, really. I don't think so. I mean, I, I've. Sometimes I, I start doing something like that and then it turns into something else, you know, because right. I get bored, you know, so maybe maybe I, maybe that's not in the cards for me. Well, I, I look forward I mean, to hearing it, I, but I look forward to hearing whatever it is. So, you know, wherever, wherever I've never done it. I mean, I mean, a rock record like the Pretenders or somebody made. I've never done that, really. You know, like the Plimsolls kind of did it. And it's been a long time, though. But like, I never really feel like I made a masterpiece like that. But, I, you know, or maybe it'd be like a Plimsolls record or something, you know, like I would like to do that maybe again. But, you know, it's getting late. I don't know if, I'm, if that's really what I'm going to do or not. I don't know. 
there's an art to doing it. You know, Lou Reed and, and uh, you know, Chrissy Hine and stuff like that. They, you know, people like that and David Bowie, you know. Uh, it's a different area than what I really usually work in. You know, my heroes, like I said, are blues singers and beat writers, you know. So I love that. And that's really what opens up my heart, you know. But, you know, you asked me, like, if there's one I have, like, you know, something that I haven't done that I would think of doing, then maybe that would be it. Well, that'd be cool. I mean, you know, you could have said rock opera or something like that. So, you know. well, you know, there's always the rock opera, rock Beth or something like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, uh, well, I had a science fiction rock opera I was thinking about for a while, but sure. you know, I was just doing that to uh, uh, entertain my children. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's not really, I don't know if I'm not going that direction. You got a title for your science fiction rock opera? Yeah, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> get, get stolen <laughs> you gotta be careful what you give up before things are done or like you'll see somebody else out there doing it. Nah, I, I i relate well well thank you so much this has been really great right, i really enjoyed talking to you and uh yeah i, I you, i'll mark. see you in i'll see you in chicago in april great. thank you mark that's all for episode 70 of carol pop thanks so much to peter case for telling such great stories and offering such deep insights into a very creative life be sure to pick up his new album, Dr. Moan, when it comes out March 31st on Sunset Boulevard Records. You can bob your head now to the pounding rhythm of the advanced single, Downtown Nowhere Blues. Case will be touring behind the album in April, with dates including World Cafe Live in Philadelphia on April 14th, Shankall in Milwaukee on April 25th, and Fitzgerald's in Berwyn, Illinois on April 26th. Go to petercase.com for more information about him and his music. You also can follow him on Twitter at ThePeterCase. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who is a man that's real. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website carolpop.com where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming episodes and events we promise not to spam you please share subscribe tell your friends and tune in again next week for another carol pop conversation thanks